Did everybody get a handout? Perfect. All right. They're going to be right over there as you see people um, walking in. Just point at them before they, because a lot of people will walk right past it. So, hello. So, we are at our final session, the doctrine of the church. And I want to begin tonight by reading to you a Dear Annie uh, excerpt. You know Dear Annie if you follow AL.com? All right. This one was literally published two days ago. Dear Annie, I have been going to a particular church religiously for over 30 years. During the pandemic, I realized that my relationship with God isn't defined by my church attendance. And I found a really great practice of getting to know a God of my understanding through readings, prayer, meditation, and attending 12-step meetings to address my overeating and having grown up in an alcoholic home. I feel my relationship with God is more intimate than ever. I now occasionally attend my church's services, and I give what I can regularly. I enjoy this more than feeling good or bad based on attendance and tithing. However, members of the church have asked where I have been and why I am not coming regularly anymore. And the looks of surprise to see me are uncomfortable. I always feel I owe them an explanation. Please help. How can I properly relay that I'm in a great spiritual place and answer them without coming across like I'm struggling with my faith? Thanks in advance. Remotely religious. Annie's response... Dear Remotely Religious, what's most important is how you feel in the relationship you have with God. After 30 plus years of worship, the fact that you feel the most connected to God now more than ever is quite special and shows just how deep your devotion and faith go. When asked, you can explain to your peers like you did here that you're still practicing but are simply taking your faith beyond the four walls of your church. Religion is far from a one-size-fits-all thing, and I guarantee those who also have a happy and secure relationship with God will be understanding. I'd also consider whether your fellow parishioners are questioning your faith or rather are indirectly expressing that they miss seeing you in the pews. Suggest attending the next church-related function together or catching up over coffee sometime soon. It's important to make room for these continued connections too. I only share that with you, uh, and this is not the doctrine of church attendance tonight. This is not what we're talking about. But you have to know that church attendance is simply one aspect that spills over from an accurate understanding of what the church is and why it gathers and how it functions. So uh, I'm going to pray for us and we'll begin. Father, as we finalize this uh, last doctrine tonight... I realize that many of the men and women that I'm talking to in this room have a healthy understanding of the church. But we also realize there are many in our church and in many other churches around that do not have a healthy understanding of what the Bible teaches about what a church is and how it should function. So as we dig into this topic tonight, we want to submit to the leadership of your spirit and what your word has to say about the doctrine of the church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I tried to give you more detailed notes than last time. I was told last time that my outline was too sparse and that um, people were just writing the whole time and they couldn't pay attention, which was intentional on my part. But tonight I figured I would give you guys more meat on your outline. So, Let's start with this. John Stott, British theologian, passed away some years ago. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. In our day today, many people in Protestant backgrounds, because we emphasize, rightly so, 
justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is all true, we almost take the church and view it over here as somehow separate from what it means to be a Christian. And so we have unintentionally downplayed, in my opinion, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and what are people's responsibilities within the body of Christ at a local level. So tonight we're going to go through this outline. I'm going to go over it with you very broadly. We're going to look at the nature of the church, the attributes of the church, the marks of the church, the membership of the church, the polity of our church, because it's the polity of First Baptist Dothan, and then the purpose of the church. I also want to recommend to you some resources here that I used in getting ready for tonight. Uh, the Church, the Gospel Made Visible by Mark Dever, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, which we went through last summer on Wednesday nights, if you joined us for that. Uh, the Church, an Introduction by Greg Allison, and then the good portion, the church, delighting in the doctrine of the church. So all of these are great resources. You're welcome to uh, look at them after we're done tonight. But a lot of my outline and things came from these books. So first, let's begin with the nature of the church. We have, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a picture of what constitutes the church. In the Old Testament, the people of God are Israel. Now, we would not go as far as to say Israel is the church, but we see many similarities between the Old Testament, holy, set-apart people of God, Israel, and then how we view the church, the set-apart people of God, the capital C church in the New Testament. So, in the Old Testament, God's eternal plan from the very beginning has always been to display His glory, not just through individuals, but through a corporate body. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, the promise that he gave to Abraham from the beginning was that he would bless Abraham and his people and ultimately the nations through him. So it was this idea from the very beginning of even Israel being not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but spreading out to include a whole corporate body of people. So he created two people rather than one. God saved one family rather than one person in the flood. God called Abram and then promised Abram's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. In Exodus, God dealt not only with Moses, but with the nation of Israel representative of 12 tribes. So it's never, even in the Old Testament, about a single individual. It's always the idea of a corporate body. And that expands out as you read the story of the whole Old Testament. So there is a connection, however, in the Hebrew word, kahal, and in the New Testament, the word ekklesia, which is where we get our term church from. They, both of these words can be defined as an assembly. So in the Old Testament, kahal. In the New Testament, ekklesia. There is a connection. And in that connection, we have this idea at its core of an assembly of people. Which goes against this Dear Annie article that we just read. That you can somehow say, I want to be religious and I want to follow after Jesus. But it's all about me and my individual walk with the Lord. That is not even a concept in the Old or the New Testament. It's always meant to be understood as a corporate, collective group of people. And so we need to remind people of that in this highly individualistic culture in which we live. Where many, many people that we all know are very comfortable just practicing their Christianity by themselves. And they're, they're missing it. They are not reading their Bibles, or if they are, they're, they're ignoring certain parts of it. And so we need to lovingly and gently push them to re-engage with the body if they've become disconnected, or if they've always believed that, take them to the scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate their heart to what's truly there. So again, in the Old Testament, it's predominantly expressed through the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it is expressed through the church. That's where we actually begin to see the word church 
ecclesia, through four primary images that you find in the New Testament. The people of God, that's referenced in 1 Peter and Romans 9. The new creation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm not going to read all these passages tonight. The idea of fellowship that's in 1 Corinthians 1, John 17, and then probably the one that we're most familiar with, the body of Christ. You find this throughout Paul's teaching. Christ is the head, we are the body to remain connected to him as a corporate group of people. So the nature of the church at its core is biblical. It is rooted in the Old Testament in Israel, rooted in the New Testament in the capital C church. It's not just something that someone made up along the way. It is inherently biblical. So then, we know that the church now has a biblical foundation in both the old and the new. So what are the attributes of the church? And we're actually going to look at some of the early creeds of the church to help us kind of organize and frame our heads around the attributes of the church. Number one, we would say that there is one church. Now, I use that in the big or the capital C manner. Obviously, there's lots of little lowercase c churches, but ultimately there is one capital C church. The unity of the church is to be a property of the church and a sign for the world reflecting the unity of God himself. And the unity of the church is a spiritual reality. Not visible at the organizational level necessarily, but it is a spiritual reality. So when I say, when we say that the church is one, any church around the world that would affirm What we believe about Jesus as God in the flesh coming to die uh, for the sins of his people, resurrected on the third day, those primary beliefs that we have, we would say that they are also a part of the church with us. So we have brothers and sisters in Christ right now in Africa and Asia and Europe. They might not be members of First Baptist Dothan, but they are members of Christ's church. We are all one body. That's why we support church planting, both in America and around the world, because they are merely an extension of our church with their own local expressions and their own local leadership, but nevertheless one church. Number two, another attribute is that the church is holy. It's fundamentally Christ's holiness. Of course, while not achieved perfectly by us, It should be daily advancing more in holiness. And the holiness of the church is what separates it from the world for God's service. I am actually going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Because one of the attributes of the church is its holiness, that's exactly why the membership within the church should care about their holiness. The definition that I often use that comes from uh, this book that Mark Dever wrote is the church is the gospel made visible. So, if the church is in fact holy, which it is, which it's supposed to be, and the people that comprise the church aspire towards holiness and pursue holiness, then that means that the church is going to act radically different from the world in which it lives. And that's how it becomes a city set on a hill and a beacon of light. So the job of the church is not to fit in with the surrounding culture. It is to maintain its holiness, which distinguishes it from the culture. And then when people see the church, as the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life, drawing uh, them to himself, they are attracted 
to the holiness of the church. And they want what the people inside that church have. Not because of anything that we have done, but because we're, we have the righteousness of Christ in us. And we are displaying that holiness. So the holiness of the church is really important. Something that we want to pursue. We do not want to fit in with the culture around us. To fit in with the culture around us loses our distinguishing mark of holiness. And while it might be attractive to some people to see a church that is just trying to accommodate to the culture and be relevant and hip and cool, if being relevant, hip, and cool means that we lose our holiness in the process, then we're not helping those people. We, we're no different than anyone else at that point. So we want to keep our holiness individually as members of the church, but also the expression of the church at large should be radically concerned with our holiness. So not only is it one church, it's a holy church, it's a universal church. It stretches across space and time. It is not the domain of any one group of true Christians. The continuity of the church across space and time prevents the church from being held captive to any one segment of it. So we are the church today in the same way that our brothers and sisters in the first century were the church. We are connected to them. We are the universal church. There is not uh, one expression of the church that can claim, you know, priority over any other expression of the church throughout the history of time. It is universal. And then number four, they're all important, but perhaps in our study of 1 John, this one hits home the most. The church is apostolic. It is founded on and is faithful to the word of God given through the apostles. I'm going to read it again as I've read it almost every single week in 1 John. This is what John says at the very beginning of his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what John writes in those first three verses in his epistle is the same thing that we believe as a church. That's what we mean by apostolic. It's not focused on any type of physical continuity of a line of pastors or elders or priests or bishops back to Christ's apostles, which is a Roman Catholic way of thinking, right? That Peter is, in fact, the first pope, and everything goes back to Peter. No, it's on the continuity, not of an individual, but on the apostolic teaching itself. And that teaching has been faithfully handed down from Peter, from Paul, from John, from James, to Augustine, to Luther, and Calvin, and Spurgeon, and any other famous uh, pastor or teacher throughout the history of the church. But it all started with the message that Jesus passed down to his apostles. And it will continue to be passed down from you and from me to the people that we faithfully teach God's word to. Children, grandchildren, people we share the gospel with that we know in our neighborhoods, co-workers, etc., etc. So Christianity is at its core a religion that is constantly being passed down. But that passed downness, which is not even a word, comes from the initial apostolic message that Jesus gave to his disciples all the way back in the Gospels. So, we are one church, we are a holy church, we are a universal church, and we are an apostolic church. As we've said throughout 1 John, one of the things that I love to say is, First Baptist Dothan is not trying to reinvent the wheel on anything here. We're simply trying to remain faithful in passing down the message that was passed down to us. No new revelation, there's nothing new that we do. 
It all is the historic, classic, old teaching of the gospel. That's what we want to remain faithful to do. So, the nature of the church, the attributes of the church, now the marks of the church. What distinguishes a church from a nonprofit that does Christian things? What distinguishes a church from a parachurch organization that does Christian things? There are actually distinct things that the church does that are clearly taught in the scriptures. And they're really not that complex. They're, they're all the things that you're probably thinking of. Number one, the right preaching of the word. If you look throughout the scriptures, life through the word is clear in the Old Testament. God created life by his breath in Genesis 1. God breathed life into man in Genesis 2. Even after the fall, God sustains them with a word of promise in Genesis 3.15 when he says that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. That's where we get that term that I use with my children that I got from the Bible we use, that Jesus is the snake crusher. That is who he is. He's the snake crusher. That's an awesome name to refer to Jesus, not just for children, but for us to remember that Jesus is the snake crusher. That promise was established in Genesis 3.15. The first appearance of the gospel comes there. In Genesis 12, God's word called Abram out. In Exodus 3.4, God called on Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. In Exodus 20, God gave his people ten words. What is that? The Ten Commandments, the law. In the New Testament, the eternal word of God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people. That's John 1.14. Jesus founded his church, and then he taught his followers to go into all the nations preaching the word, the message of reconciliation to God through faith in him. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. 18 to 20. So the number one job, the number one mark of a church is that the word of God is being faithfully proclaimed, bar none. So you leave First Baptist Dothan one day or you know somebody who's looking for a church, what are you going to tell them to look for? Is the word of God faithfully being taught week in and week out? Not are there people my age, not what kind of music do they play, not um, do they have great programs for my kids or my preschoolers or do they have a good student ministry? No. Is the word of God faithfully being taught? Because all those other things can be happening. And if there's not a faithful proclamation of the gospel and of the word week in and week out, it doesn't matter how healthy it appears numerically, it's not healthy. You tracking with me? It has to start with a healthy preaching of God's word. That's not to toot my horn or any pastor in this church's horn, but it has to start there. There's nothing more important than a church can do than faithfully exposit the scriptures week in and week out. A church that has 12 people, but the pastor there faithfully preaches the whole counsel of God week in and week out, and maybe no one ever comes to that church new, for whatever reason. The people might be doing all the things they're supposed to do, evangelizing, inviting people, people just aren't coming. And that pastor is faithfully expositing the whole counsel of God week in and week out. That pastor is more faithful as a preacher than any other pastor who could have thousands and thousands attending on Sunday but not faithfully preaching God's word. That's, that is the distinguishing mark of a healthy church. Bar none. Number two, so, what's, so what does right preaching look like? We've said that the right preaching of the word is number one. So what does that look like? Well, we believe, uh, and not just we, but most healthy churches, or that aspire to be healthy churches, believe in preaching the whole counsel of God. What we would call... Um, biblical theology, which is the idea that you trace the whole storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so if you're going to talk about um, 
the atonement, you're not just going to focus on what the Gospels say about the atonement, but you're going to go back into the Old Testament and talk about the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 and point out how that theme of a sacrifice being made for the sins of people is traced throughout the whole storyline of the Bible. So everything a preacher says must be placed within and shaped by the grid of biblical theology that teaches both the preacher and the congregation about God and what he requires of humanity. Old Testament promises were fulfilled to his people in the New Testament through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ransom and the lamb. He's the prophet, the priest, the second Adam, and the faithful son. All of these themes can be found both the Old and the New Testament. So we want to faithfully preach the whole counsel of God. Genesis to Revelation. We want to preach. You know, so this is, how, this is what I do. I sit down and I have this document on my computer. And I've had I, I've, everything that we've preached since I've been here. right? And I'm always evaluating. Okay, we, we spent four months in an epistle. We spent three months in a gospel. Uh, we spent four months in an Old Testament narrative. So as I was looking at this, as we started thinking about 2023, I realized that we haven't done any Old Testament prophecy in terms of a, a, a massive study. So coming up in early 2024, we're going to spend a deep dive looking at Isaiah 40 to 55. Why would we do that? Because we need to be exposed to the prophets. And the prophets are not popular. They're not something that we spend a lot of time preaching on or teaching on. But what's best for the health of all of us? Being exposed to the whole counsel of God. Not just preaching and teaching from the books that are fun and easy to preach and teach from. So that's how we need to approach uh, God's word. So the framework of right preaching is biblical theology, the whole counsel of God. And then the center of right teaching, obviously, is the gospel. Right teaching about the gospel requires a right understanding not only about God, but about humanity. Right teaching about the gospel also centers on Christ's work of atonement and not only on his teaching or life example. We talked about that a little this morning. There's a lot in Jesus' life that is very attractive to people. People love Jesus. They love him because he's a great teacher. They love him because he's a miracle worker. They love him because he was compassionate towards all people. But sometimes in, in churches that maybe aren't healthy or that are just straight up not healthy, uh, we neglect to talk about why Jesus actually came. To save his people from what? Their sins. And how does that manifest itself? Through a bloody, gruesome death on the cross this coming Friday, historically, that we celebrate, right? So, right teaching about the gospel centers the church not on human actions, but on receiving by faith and repentance the rewards of God's actions in Christ. Sometimes I'm prone as I finish up my sermons and I'm trying to think through how do I want to seal the deal on this sermon. And as I'll be writing or thinking about it, you know, I'll sometimes have the devil in the back of my mind saying, you know, you talk about repentance and faith too much. Why don't you try to end on a different note, right? Why don't you just give a powerful illustration and just leave people? No, right? I have to return back to those same words that we say all the time. It is only by repentance and faith in Christ alone that one can be saved. We have to remain true to that uh, no matter what. I love this quote from Mark Dever. He said, churches must not err by neglecting either repentance or faith. Without the former, which is repentant, or yeah, repentance, a mental assent only faith follows, which is dead, according to James chapter 2. Without the latter, which would be faith, faith and reliance on Christ vanish behind demands of obedience to the law. It's Romans 2 and 3. A gospel-centered church teaches the need to both turn from sin and turn to Christ. By itself, a searching exposition 
on human sin is not enough. By itself, the proclamation of God's love in Christ's atoning death is not enough. Both are necessary. A cross not taken up by repentance or affirmed by faith is a cross that does not save. So we have to constantly go back to what we call, um, what Greg Gilbert in his little book, What is the Gospel, says that conversion is, is basically, you know, or faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Both are required. You don't pick one or the other. You know, lots of people would say, I'm good with the faith side of things. They're fine turning to Christ, but they're not fine abandoning their life of sin. And then there might be other people on the other side that they're, they're disciplined, they can keep rules and laws, and they, they like structure, that would be me, and they can lean completely on just not sinning and turning from their sin, but trusting ultimately themselves to accomplish that, rather than putting their faith in Christ and by His Spirit being able to overcome the desires of the flesh. So both faith and repentance are necessary. That is the right um, teaching that every healthy church should not only aspire, but should do. So the distinguishing mark, the right preaching of the word. How does that manifest itself in preaching the whole counsel of God? And then number three, with a focus always on repentance and faith. You can find Jesus, you can get to repentance and faith in almost every book of the Bible and almost every story and passage you read. It's there. You just have to do the hard work of finding it. There's always a call for faith and repentance. When we were in Judges, there was a call for faith and repentance. When we're in 1 John, there's a call for faith and repentance. When we'll study Isaiah, there's a call for faith and repentance. It's there. You just have to do the hard work of finding it. So, number one, the number one distinguishing mark of the church, the right preaching of the word. Do not settle for anything less than that in this church or in any church that you're ever a part of or the church that your kids or your grandkids attend. Make sure that you communicate to them that's always the priority. The faithful teaching of God's word is number one. Number two, the right administration of the ordinances. Now, we celebrate two ordinances. The Lord's Supper, first Sunday of every month, and then baptism, whenever somebody's ready to be baptized. So let's dig into these two ordinances And I structure them in a who, what, when, where, why type format for you to understand biblically how these ordinances are laid out. There's actually a lot more structure to how the Lord's Supper and baptism should be done than many churches often devote to it. And we want to get into some of the details on that. So, what is the Lord's Supper? In the Lord's Supper, we are remembering and proclaiming Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we read uh, every time we take communion together. I don't read these particular verses, but in verses 25 and 26. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. We are proclaiming the death of Christ. We're also sharing together by faith the saving benefits of Christ's sacrifice for us. One chapter earlier in chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, Paul says, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So, like we say every single month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is a family meal. It is to be shared together with all of those that have professed faith in Christ and repented of their sin and believed in faith 
in Christ alone. That's why I spend so much time, uh, every single time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, going through who can partake of this meal and who can't. We don't want non-believers partaking of this meal. Now, can we control that? No. You know, I don't think Ed this morning when he was passing out the tray said, you're not a Christian, give that back. We can't do that, right? So all we can do is faithfully teach what the scriptures teach and hope that that person in good conscience will know, number one, I am a believer and I can partake of this meal, or number two, I'm not, and I don't want to heap judgment upon myself, as Paul says in this passage. But it's not just a believer and a non-believer thing. If you'll notice, we always have some time of corporate confession prior to when we take the meal. This morning, Nick uh, read from Romans 7, and then we had a prayer of confession. But even before he started praying, there was a moment of silence where we could just reflect in our own hearts and bring our sins before the Lord so that we could uh, ask for his forgiveness. Now, obviously, we're not, you know, completely pure and removed from all sin in this life ever, right? That's only going to come when Jesus returns. But to the best of our ability, we want to seek God and examine our own hearts and confess any sins that we can be mindful of before we partake of that meal. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. It's it's supposed to be a picture of what we will one day do when we are all together with Christ. We will feast together. And it's an appetizer. It's certainly not a full meal the way we do it. Amen to that, right? Those crackers are not the most tasty uh, wafers. So it's, it's an appetizer for the feast that will commence on the day when Christ reunites heaven and earth. Part of the reason it's an appetizer is because for, for you to long for the real thing. So when we get appetizers at restaurants, it's just to kind of give us a little taste of something to get us ready for that main course when it comes. So, so is the Lord's Supper. That wafer and that grape juice, is, it is not supposed to be the full meal. But when Christ returns to gather his church, we will feast with him for all of eternity. So there is a sense of longing for more when we approach that meal because we know that one day we will feast with Christ. So, all right, that's what it is. Who can participate? Now, I'm going to express the traditional Baptist view here since we're a Baptist church, but obviously there's all sorts of different parameters and different denominations and churches on who can participate. We ask that those who participate in the Lord's Supper, number one, be converted, that's very clear, but number two, that they be baptized believers by immersion. Now again, how do we control that? We can only control it on the honor system, but that's what we want people to do. Number three, when, and this brings up a very uh, important point, when do we actually celebrate the Lord's Supper? Biblically, the Lord's Supper is always in the context of a corporate gathering. Maybe you hadn't thought about that before. Actually, if we want to be most faithful to the text, we want to do the Lord's Supper only when the church gathers. There's lots of varying beliefs and opinions on that, but uh, to the best of our ability... We want to be faithful to that. So, we, you know, we don't really, I don't celebrate communion with my family at home because it's a family meal in the context of a corporate gathering. Uh, this comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. So the idea is that when we gather as a church family, That is when we participate together as the collective body in the eating of the Lord's Supper. So where? Well, I'm going to be a stickler again on this one and say it should happen in the same room together. That ties in with the win. And then why do we do it? That's simple. In obedience to Christ's command. 
We're given all these examples in the Gospels, and then we're given Paul's kind of detailed teaching on it in 1 Corinthians 11. We do it in obedience to Christ's commands. How often you do it, that's up for a local church's own leadership to determine. I grew up doing it in the church that I grew up at quarterly. I prefer to do it monthly, which is why we do it monthly. Some Baptist churches do it every single week. There's no, uh, I would say, biblically prescribed right or wrong way to do it. Uh, When I went off to seminary, I became a part of a church that did it the first Sunday of every month, and I loved that practice, and so that's kind of what I implemented here uh, when I came as pastor. There's nothing wrong with churches that do it quarterly. There's nothing wrong with churches that do it every week. The scriptures are not um, explicit on how it is to be done. But we do want to consistently, regularly partake of the Lord's Supper, however that might look. We wouldn't want to go five years without taking the Lord's Supper. And that is what I would say, it's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of prudence. You seek the leadership of the church, you seek God's wisdom, and you try to come up with um, a right number of times per year that you feel like works within your context. But I wouldn't ever suggest to a pastor, do it just once a year or just do it once every five years or ten years. It needs to be something that we remember more than that, but not necessarily have to be done every single Sunday or whenever. Baptism. So the first ordinance, the Lord's Supper. Baptism. What is it? It is a church's, and I do say a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in the water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. So there's two things happening in baptism. And part of it is actually the responsibility of the church. When a candidate, we call them a baptismal candidate. You know why we call them that? They are a candidate because it is the church's job, the membership of the church, to affirm that profession of faith. So we are saying when that individual is baptized, that the church and its members can affirm a credible profession of faith in that individual. And that we, we affirm it, we can see fruit in that person's life, and because of that, we want to move forward with them in baptism. So, what does that mean for you guys? That means if a brother or sister has been converted to faith in Christ, and they come and they say uh, they would like to be baptized and you have pause because you do not see evidence of fruit or evidence of conversion in their life, it is not your responsibility to sit still and be quiet. It is your responsibility to come and talk to the pastors and say, I have a reservation about this person being baptized at this time. Now, that might make you very uncomfortable, but just know that is part of your role as a member of the church. And... Since baptism doesn't save anybody anyways, we all know that, right? Baptism doesn't save you. So what's the rush? Why is there this rush to constantly want to baptize people if we don't see credible evidence of conversion in them? We're not saying they're not saved. We're simply saying maybe they're not quite ready to be baptized yet. But if baptism doesn't save anybody, then we don't have to rush them through to get them under the water. Do we want them to be baptized? Yes, of course. We want every Christian to be baptized. But we don't want to push for a baptism if there is not fruit in a person's life. And we'll get into like, well, how do you know and how do you determine that all in just a moment? So just know that it's the church's act of affirming a credible profession of faith, but it's also that individual giving that first public profession of faith to a whole group of people. 
So in that act of baptism, of course, you've probably already known that they became a Christian. Maybe they told you on a one-on-one basis or maybe in a group of people. But the act of baptism is that first full public display of that individual telling this church that they belong to, I have repented of my sins and I have put my faith in Christ. Not to toot our own horn, but how awesome were those testimonies before baptism a few weeks ago? That's, and guess what? That was a big step for all of those people. And I'm telling you, I didn't do that when I was baptized, okay? But we're going to do that here because it's a really big step. And not only is it meaningful for that individual to get comfortable sharing their testimony of faith, what better first group of people to share their testimony of faith with than the brothers and sisters that are affirming their conversion? I mean, we literally could have ended the service that Sunday after those testimonies. Now, of course, we're not going to do that because the right preaching of the word is very important. But (laughs) nevertheless, the Spirit was at work through those testimonies of how those people came to faith in Christ. And guess what? Those were difficult things for those people to do. Particularly the one of them was really struggling with whether or not they were going to be able to do it. And I told that individual afterwards, I could not even tell that you were in the slightest bit nervous. So there's, there's great power in that. We're going to have another baptism from one of our students on April 16th. And she's a little nervous about doing it. But, you know, that's why you have pastors to coach and help people and faithful church members that we can sit down and say, look, we're going to help you with this. We want you to be able to flesh out what it is you believe about Christ. And there's no better place to work on your testimony and, you know, fine-tune it than with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, who does it? Well, obviously, we don't baptize people that are not converted. Conversion and baptism, they're two separate things, right? Somebody just comes up to me and says they want to be baptized, I'm going to say, tell me about your story of how you came to faith in Christ. If they can't give a story or a credible profession of faith, We're not going to baptize them because baptism doesn't save. So there's no rush to baptize if there's no credible uh, profession of faith and story of repentance and faith in Christ. Uh, When, again, when the credibility of one's conversion becomes naturally discernible and evident to the church community. Now, I realize that's difficult to do because you're not going to hire a private investigator to track that individual as they go home and to their job and all the things that they do. But there are ways that we can discern with the common eye whether or not a person gives credible uh, evidence of conversion to faith in Christ. Here's a really simple one. Show up. Be at church. Of course, church doesn't save anyone. We, We all know that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But what's a very basic, simple fruit? connecting to the body, showing up week in and week out. Not saying you have to be there 52 weeks out of the year, but somebody comes to us and says they want to be baptized and they have uh, been to church one week out of the last 200 weeks. There's not evidence of faithful fruit there. So that goes back to the Dear Annie article. You know, you've you've got to be a part of the body. So where? In the church gathering with rare exceptions made. I say rare exceptions made because we all know of perhaps a brother or sister late in life who was converted to faith in Christ. They are unable to come to a corporate gathering because of their health. So, you know, it's up to the, that local church and the pastors within that church to determine, all right, how can we handle this baptism Do we want to do this? Do we not want to do this? That has to be an individual church decision. Now, some of you are thinking you're being way too legalistic about this, but I would say that being baptized in the Jordan River is not a good idea. That's just me, Uh, but I wouldn't do that. And honestly, if you have a chance to go to Israel, you really don't need to be baptized in the Jordan River again. There's only one baptism. If you want to just get in the Jordan River and swim around, go for it. But I don't really think we need to repeat 
our baptisms or just say that I was baptized in the Jordan River when you were already baptized in a church at some point in your life. I'm not, again, like you're not, I'm not even, you're not in trouble or anything. I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's wise biblical practice to do so. So if I ever get a chance to go to Israel, I might get in the Jordan River, but I'm not going to be baptized by whoever, whichever tour guide is taking me on that tour. Um, I think it should be done in the church gathering with rare exceptions made. And those rare exceptions should be very rare, and they should be dealt with in a members meeting and with the pastors of the church trying to decide how can we be most faithful to the biblical text and what it teaches about baptism. Why should we do it? That's really obvious. Jesus commands it, and Jesus modeled it. Uh, The couple that was baptized a few weeks ago, uh, they both came out of a tradition that was non-Baptist, right? And in non-Baptist traditions, there are different understandings about the, the right kind of baptism, infant baptism. Obviously, we practice believer's baptism. If you want to be a member of this church, you have to be baptized by immersion. Why, why are we a stickler on that point? It's very simple, because Jesus was baptized that way. So there's no like complex verse that we dig out of like, you know, Amos to point to believers' baptism. It's very simple. Why should we be baptized by immersion? Because Jesus was baptized by immersion. That's, it's as simple as that. That's why we do it. So I want to share with you, because some of you are probably thinking, well, how do I deal with this when it comes to children? How can you, I mean, a child, what kind of fruit should we be looking for in a child? They have professed faith in Christ. We've seen evidence of repentance and faith there. How do we know when that child is old enough to follow through uh, with baptism? I would say within the last 100 years of Southern Baptist life especially, we have a lot of times quickly moved from conversion to baptism in children. And I would say that sometimes that has worked out well. I would say many times it hasn't. So how do we discern? You have children, you have grandchildren. How do you discern, okay, you feel really good to the best of your ability as a parent or a grandparent that your child is converted to faith in Christ. So why wait on baptism? Or why even consider waiting on baptism? And I want to read a quote, and then I want to give you just some questions to consider about how you would go about this baptism issue with your children. The least spiritually, this is the quote from Mark Dever again from his book, the least spiritually discerning parents with the best intentions have too often brought pressure on their compliant children to be baptized. Such children have thereby been wrongly assured of their salvation and have been further hardened to hearing the gospel later in life. Tragically, I don't know what that word is. Tragically, I think it's the act they most need may be hidden by the act meant to display it. So in other words, why is baptism so important and why am I being such a stickler about baptism? Baptism is the credible profession of a child or any adult, for that matter's faith. So baptism is not what saves them, but baptism is that marker of remembrance of what Christ has done in their life. So if, uh, I mean, we're dealing with this with my son right now, right? Knows all the answers, you know, ready to receive Christ, ready to be baptized, ready to take the Lord's Supper because he sees all these people getting to eat this wafer and this juice. And it would be really easy for me to just comply with that request. He's in church every Sunday, knows all the right answers, etc., etc. So why am I being very, very deliberate? Because what I don't want to happen to him or to any of our children or to any of our grandchildren is that they, because they 
have the faith side of things down, they can mentally assent to all the facts of the gospel. But what am I waiting for in my son? I'm waiting for not a, you know, theologically rich definition of sin by any means, but I'm waiting to see conviction in his heart over his sin and some semblance of an understanding of I'm a sinner and the God that I want to be reconciled to is a holy God who cannot, you know, be around people that have sin. And you might be saying, well, you know, you're a pastor and you're just doing that because, you know, you have to set a good example. Well, maybe so. But we need to be really careful with our children and our grandchildren that we don't in any way, uh, and, and with good intentions, because we want our children and our grandchildren to be reconciled to a holy God so that they can spend eternity with God. 100%. We want that. But we don't want to do anything that would cause a potential false conversion. And then we push forward with baptism. And that, that child becomes an adult and they, they disengage from the church completely, and they, they probably really weren't saved to begin with. Because what do we know about those that are in Christ? They remain until the end. They persevere. We believe that as Baptists, right? That those who are truly saved do not lose their salvation. They are converted, they are saved forever, and they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, again... This is a really hard issue when we're dealing with our children and our grandchildren. And I'm not, I'm not prescribing anything for you to do with your children or your grandchildren. I'm just trying to get you thinking about these things. So here's some questions you can ask. At what age would you baptize a child? Number one, there's no silver bullet answer for this. But here are some of the questions we need to ask. What do, when does it usually become naturally evident to mom or dad or even the pastor or the church that this person is truly converted? Number two, when would it be natural for a young person to deal directly with the church and not through their parents? Number three, since we should never baptize someone whom we would not be willing to put under church discipline, when would that typically seem right or even reasonable? Number four, we want our young people to understand what they're doing and remember it forever. So when is someone typically old enough for that to be the case? And then lastly, to return to our thinking on childhood, when do we normally see a clear move from dependence to independence, from instability to stability, and from untested to tested? Here's what makes this topic so tricky. Because every child matures at a different rate. So there might be a legitimate five, six, seven-year-old who theologically understands the holiness of God and their own sin. There also might be a 12-year-old who's still clueless. So we don't want to ever equate the biological age of a child with this is, this is when they're ready. This takes wisdom. This takes the whole church working together. So, you know, as, as you are taking a part in raising up my children, you can come to me and say, I see God at work in so-and-so's life, in Beckett's life, or Emma's life, or Avery Kate's life, or I don't see it, right? So as, as I'm having conversations with my son, I might be approaching some of you and saying, what, what do you see? Do you see any of the qualities of the Holy Spirit working in my children's life? We should be bouncing these ideas off one another and looking for it in the lives of our children. Oh my goodness. We got to roll. Membership of the church. Responsibilities and duties of regenerate church membership. Regenerate church membership is what we believe here, okay? Number one, they should be baptized. Number two, they should partake of the Lord's Supper. Number three and number four, I did it twice, probably because I'm so obsessed with it. Attend weekly gatherings. I didn't mean to do it twice, but I like it. And then number five, love, pray, and encourage one another. On the next page, seek peace and unity. Number seven, respect, trust, pray, and encourage your pastors. Number eight, evangelize and disciple. That's the responsibility of every church member. That is not just the responsibility of the pastors. 
We're all supposed to take a role in doing this. It's the pastor's jobs to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Responsibilities and duties of the congregation. Hold the leadership accountable. I think we talked about this some this morning. You have an active participatory role in our church to hold myself and all of the pastors accountable. We are not in any way, shape, or form above the law. Just because we are pastors does not mean that we get a pass on anything. It is your job to hold us accountable and to approach us when you have concerns about whether that be our behavior, our teaching, etc. And then we also have a responsibility to hold one another accountable through protecting and defining membership of the church, in admitting and dismissing members for various reasons. That's why this members meeting on April 16th is going to be really important because we're going to try to elevate the importance of those meetings. It, it shouldn't just be we're looking over the finances of the church and let's adjourn. But it should be, let's vote in these new people that were just baptized. Let's celebrate what God did in their life. Let's hear from the pastors in their various areas of ministries. Let's hear from the mission teams that just returned from New Orleans and Guatemala. And those are the type of meetings that are really important and beneficial to the church. The polity of our church. We practice congregationalism, which you know that. The fundamental responsibility under God for the maintenance of all aspects of public worship of God belongs to the congregation. No body outside of the whole congregation has this same degree of responsibility. Congregationalism is a beautiful thing. And we should resurrect it if we have tipped too much power away from it. It's really good that we have congregationalism that we do not move forward uh, with big, huge church decisions just because I tell you it's what we need to do. You should be uh, bought in on it and affirming it and want to support it. Now, obviously, what we don't mean by congregationalism is that you know, we have to have a church vote on every single thing the church ever does. But on the big decisions of the church, that is, who do we admit as members? Who do we dismiss as members? Who do we allow to be candidates for baptism? Who do we actually uh, move forward with in baptism? Uh, church budget. You know, you guys have a fundamental role in setting the budget. It's not just me and the staff coming up with a number and saying, approve it. You should do the hard work of looking at last year's finances and seeing, you know, how giving went and did we come up short? How much of a surplus did we have? If we have a really big surplus, maybe we should look at raising the budget. We don't really want to end with an $800,000 surplus. That means that we didn't really budget appropriately, right? So all of those things happen within the confines of your role as a member of the congregation. Leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 3, which we're going to preach through 1 Timothy uh, in the fall. We're going to spend a lot of time on what does it look like to have Faithful pastors, faithful deacons. The Bible actually gives us lots of information on what those people should look like. So they should be explicitly qualified, reputable with outsiders, possess a keen sense of accountability, exercise authority, and edify the church. What are the officers of the church within our polity? Deacons and pastors. And they both have specific roles. They're different but they're both fundamental to how the church operates. The best way I have to explain it is that elders serve the church by leading and deacons lead the church by serving. It's not unique to me. That's Matt Smethers in his book on deacons. He came and spoke to our deacons and that's kind of how he distinguishes them. And then the discipline of the church. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, I can't go through them tonight, but just know church discipline is not a bad thing. It's a biblical thing. It's how the church maintains its holiness. When we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are not walking in holiness, obviously none of us are perfectly, but if there is overt, explicit sin that we hear about, as the scriptures teach us, we should go to that person privately and address it. If they don't want to fix it, you take a brother or sister along with you in a small group of people. If they still refuse to repent, you take it before the whole church. If they still refuse to repent, you no longer associate with them. 
You invite them to worship. You still want them to be a part of the body, but you do not allow them to participate in communion. That's what church discipline means. There's lots of, uh, a lot more detail to it than that, and how do you exercise it, and how do you manage it, and all of those things, but simply put, it is the role of the congregation to make sure that the church remains holy, since that's one of its attributes. Very quickly, the purpose of the church. Collective and individual worship. Collectively, we want to read, preach, sing, pray, and see the word. What Reed and I use is known as the regulative principle. That's how we structure our worship services here. The regulative principle means that the way we structure our services, we believe, is clearly laid out in the scriptures. And how that expresses itself is, in every single worship service, we want to read the scriptures, we want to sing the scriptures, we want to pray the scriptures, we want to preach the scriptures, and then we want to see the scriptures, and those are in the ordinances. So that's how we structure our services. Hopefully you've picked up on the fact that our call to worship in the service, this is very nitty-gritty, but it's good to know, our call to worship always follows the announcement video. That's strategic. Why do we do that? Because we don't consider the announcement video to be a part of the worship service. We want you to know what's going on, which is why we have them, and we constantly have debates on whether or not we continue to need to do them or if we shouldn't. We're always talking about that. But we want to distinguish my little welcome at the beginning and the announcement video from now we worship God. And everything from this point forward clearly laid out in the scriptures. And we don't want to deviate from it in any way. And then obviously we expect you to individually be worshiping through the spiritual disciplines, the reading of God's word, prayer, meditation. Number two, edification. This happens through community. It also happens through discipleship and growth. As you gather in your community groups, as you uh, go to lunch with people in your community group, or you get to know people in the church, you build up one another that way. Evangelism and missions. We want to do that both locally through the organizations that we support and sponsor, but also to the ends of the earth, which is why we have a group returning, probably landing any minute now, um, from Guatemala. And then ultimately the purpose of the church is for the glory of God. It is not for the advancement of the preacher or any person on staff or any of you. The purpose of the church is for the glory of God. Let me close with this quote. Many Protestants have begun to think that because the church is not essential to the gospel, it is not important to the gospel. This is an unbiblical, false, and dangerous conclusion. Our churches are the proof of the gospel. In the gatherings of the church, the Christian scriptures are read. In the ordinances of the church, the work of Christ is depicted. In the life of the church, the character of God himself should be evident. A church seriously compromised in character would seem to make the gospel itself irrelevant. So leave tonight knowing that all of the nitpicky things that I say about being at church and how we structure the ordinances and all the different things we do is not just done for me to you know, be legalistic. It's done because of what we believe about the nature and the attributes of the church. On the back page, there's a number of resources. If you have any questions or you want to talk more, I'll be happy to um, talk with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this night. I thank you for the men and women in this room. Because almost all the men and women in this room understand the role of the church and are faithful to it. And God, it is our prayer that you would continue to grow our church. And what we mean by that is spiritually. That you would see people, that we would see people move from death to life. And we would see people move from spiritual infants in Christ to spiritual mature members of the body. That's what we want. That's the vision. That's what we pray for. And we trust you to do it according to your will for this church. However that means it looks... We will submit to your leadership. We ask all of these things in Christ's name.